All right, well, once again, thank you for joining us for one of these little extra sessions. And I want to say a special thanks to Ian Webster because I called him like three times in the last hour to figure out how to set this up and to make it work properly. And I believe uh, it is working. So thank you, Ian. I want to talk today about a question I've been asked, I think, four times in about just over a month, which is a lot for, for me to get asked something like that repeatedly. The question is, what are we supposed to do with prophecy today? What is it? Does it still happen? Uh, how are we supposed to think about Christians who claim to prophesy? How do we read 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, the book of Acts, etc.? I was asked this by at least one or two former students by email. I was asked this by a current member of our church very recently. Well, something in this ballpark of the, of the gifts of the Spirit and baptism of the Spirit, these kinds of things. And then I was asked by um, a, a former member just recently uh, about these gifts, prophecy and tongues. So uh, th these, these issues continue to come up, and so I think we need to continue to try to talk about them. And I'll tell you, uh, this will probably be a long video, but um, <clears throat> I grew up Presbyterian, so my church just sort of was by default cessationist in its convictions. That is that the certain miraculous sign gifts, such as prophecy and tongues and interpretation, were not practiced. I never saw that done, and we just sort of assumed growing up cessationism. When I became a genuine believer, I, I, I started reading, I started listening to Wayne Grudem actually on this issue, and John Piper, and even Don Carson, and people like C.J. Mahaney, and Sovereign Grace Ministries, and I went to conferences where Bob Coughlin led in prophetic songs, where he believed he was prophesying as he sung a spontaneous song uh, in the middle of a New Attitude conference in 2007, and I was like, I, I, what do I make of this? And I remember listening to hours of Grudem's lectures on prophecy, and I think I kind of quietly became convinced he was probably right, that, that the gifts continue today, prophecy and tongues. And although I didn't have the book at the time, uh, this book is basically Wayne Grudem's doctoral dissertation, uh, written uh, down in a way that's pretty understandable, The Gift of Prophecy in the New Testament and Today <clears throat> by Wayne Grudem. And so this book uh, is, is, is a huge book in the evangelical world. Uh, uh, this may be the second edition, but th this came out in 1988 originally, so when I was one, and uh, th this book has been significant. Th this has really turned the tide to where you had sort of the crazy charismatic Pentecostal slash prosperity gospel side where there was no controls at all on prophecy and tongues, and then you had the strong cessationist side that I kind of grew up in, uh, and, uh, but then Grudem provided sort of a reformed, seemingly biblically sophisticated uh, well-reasoned uh, approach to this issue. And so this book right here, his doctoral dissertation, I think, changed the evangelical world uh, in a pretty significant way so that you have people coming after him uh, like Piper being persuaded. Piper was persuaded in the late 80s by Grudem's argument essentially contained in this book that prophecy and even tongues continue today. He then preached on uh, these kinds of things. I think it was around the year 1990, 1991. If you listen to Piper's sermons those years, uh, I'm, I'm going to end up disagreeing with, with, with a number of his, the things he's going to say there. And then uh, Don Carson is persuaded by kind of a tweaked version of what's in this book. And then you have people that come along behind. So you've got Don Carson coming along behind with a book called Showing the Spirit, uh, a theological exposition of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, where he argues very much along the lines of Wayne Grudem. And Don Carson is a heavy-hitting uh, top-shelf New Testament scholar, and he takes the continuationist view, which was pretty stunning. And this, this is a very uh, well-thought-out academic book, but I, I'm going to have profound disagreements with this as time goes on. Uh, Sam Storms, another guy who's been influenced by Piper and Grudem, wrote a book uh, called um, Practicing the Power, Welcoming the Gifts of the Holy Spirit in Your Life. 
And uh, you can see here the foreword is written by Matt Chandler, who's another very well-known, influential, Reformed Baptist-type uh, preacher who's also a continuationist. And although he's been uh, largely uh, discredited, I think, uh, in recent years, last decade, Mark Driscoll uh, was, a, was a huge preacher, if you don't remember, 2013, about 2006 to 2013, Driscoll was huge. And I was very much influenced by Driscoll during those years. He was a strong continuationist. Tully and Chavidjian, who I know has later been discredited for other reasons, was also continuationist and on and on. So there, there was a large move of continuationist reform theology. And one of the big questions this all hinges on is what, what, uh, what is prophecy and does it still happen today? That, that's one of the big questions that we're, that we're dealing with here. So let me go ahead and say from the start that in order to get anywhere on this issue, uh, we need to know... Um, what the Bible says. And you say, duh. Well, here's what I'm, I'm somewhat afraid of, and I think this is true on both sides of the debate. We've been largely influenced by, let's be honest, our experiences on this. So if you grew up with kind of crazy charismatic uh, people around you, then you may be more likely to not believe in the charismatic gifts at all. If you grew up in uh, circles where they seem to be practiced in a more biblical way, uh, as, as maybe in the Grudem sort of way, you, you might be saying, well, no, these things probably do happen, and you might even have stories, uh, stories where something came to your mind, and you said it, and it had a profound emotional impact on the person next to you, and they say, how could you have known that? And you say, I didn't know. I think the Lord just led me to say this, or I've heard stories of someone having images of things in their mind, like one story, a friend of mine who's charismatic said he had a picture of a skull in his mind when he was talking to someone, and he said, I don't know what this means, but the Lord seems to be prompting me to tell you that, that I have this image of, of death or, or, or something like that in my mind, and the, the father in this case broke down sobbing. Apparently, he lost either a child or a loved one recently, and he was broken. He said, that's exactly what I needed to hear, and so I know Matt Chandler. Matt Chandler was influenced big time by an early story that happened after he'd just become a Christian. Uh, he was told to write some things down like on a napkin somewhere and like whatever came to his mind. And he pictured like a black sweatshirt. I'm gonna get the details wrong, like gray sweatpants. He pictured like a daughter or something like just like weird images came to his mind. And they go to like a McDonald's and a guy walks in with a black shirt and gray sweatpants and he's talking about his daughter. And like Matt Chandler's like, holy cow, this must be real. So here's what I wanna warn everyone from the beginning. We've all got experiences on this issue, whether for or against, whether in the middle or on one side or the other, and we need to be careful that our experiences not decide the issue first, and then we read our experiences back into the text, accidentally doing eisegesis, where we read our opinions into the Bible, rather than reading out of the text. So I want to try to remove a lot of what we've, what, what we've uh, thought about or heard, and I want us to look just straight at the Bible, and let's work, do some careful exegesis. That's the goal. So I'm already taking too much time here. Let's, let's move. So... Uh, this must be decided by exegesis, not by experience. Uh, what does prophecy refer to in the New Testament? Uh, is uh, New Testament prophecy different from Old Testament prophecy? These are all questions we want to look at. Andrew Wilson, who you may have heard of, he writes for things like the Gospel Coalition. He's written a number of books. He's a pastor, I think, in the UK area, somewhere over there. And um, he's definitely a continuationist. He believes the gifts continue today. He argues, quote, if the first three steps are all true, then the fourth one follows. This is an essay he wrote for Themalios, the theological online magazine, where he and Tom Schreiner debated back and forth on these issues. Tom Schreiner is a cessationist. I'll just go ahead and tell you. He wrote this book, which is, it's, it's, I wish it was longer. Uh, it's a very brief book, but it's on spiritual gifts, and uh, he argues for a, a solid cessationist position, and I really love Tom Schreiner. He helped me uh, actually change my mind on this issue in recent years. Um, even though I was never 
fully persuaded, probably either way for a period of years. So Andrew Wilson, who's a continuationist, he thinks these gifts continue. He says, if the first three points he's about to give you are true, then the fourth point has to follow necessarily. And I actually agree with him on this. Here, here they are. They should be right next to me here on the screen. Uh, number one, prophesying in the Old Testament was infallible, divine revelation. So in the Old Testament, is it true that prophesying was infallible, divine revelation? I think this point is easy to establish, even though, shockingly, Andrew Wilson takes the minority view that even Old Testament prophets could be in error when they prophesied at times without being a false prophet. Uh, that, that's, that's an astonishing idea. I don't agree with him. Number two, there is no indication of a change. Prophesying in the New Testament is also infallible, divine revelation. So is it true that Old Testament prophecy is infallible? I think that's pretty easy to establish, and most people, including Grudem uh, and others, Piper, would agree. Number two, there's no indication of a change going into the New Testament. So prophesying in the New Testament is also infallible divine revelation. And, and there's a certain common sense to this. If it's infallible in the Old Testament, infallible divine speech straight from heaven through the Spirit coming out your mouth, if it's infallible divine speech in the Old Testament, and to have any error would mean it's fundamentally false and not genuine prophecy. If that was true in the Old Testament, you're, the burden of proof is on the person like Grudem, who's going to say New Testament prophecy is different fundamentally in some ways than Old Testament prophecy. If you're going to argue for <clears throat> difference between Old and New Testament prophecy or prophetes, uh, then you need to, the burden of proof is on you to prove that. Number three, Paul describes the church as built on the, we'll come back to this, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets in Ephesians 2.20, which indicates that New Testament prophecy is not just infallible, but also foundational. So it's, it's infallible, and it's also foundational in the New Testament. So if those three points are true, Old Testament prophets were infallible, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Number two, and if there's no clear change in the New Testament, the New Testament prophecy is infallible, inerrant, divine revelation on the same level as Scripture. Then number three, Paul describes the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which means it's both infallible and foundational for the church. Then number four, Andrew Wilson argues, therefore the Pauline exhortations to pursue spiritual gifts, especially prophecy, should be considered as unique to the first century and no longer binding on the church today. So that is the conclusion, number four. Now, this is coming from a guy who disagrees with cessationism. This is not a cessationist. And he argues if the first three points are true, the fourth point has to follow that prophecy was unique to the time of the apostles and it no longer is binding on the church today. Ironically, I agree with him. Those three points are right and it leads to that fourth point correctly. Tom Schreiner says something very similar. He's a cessationist. He agrees. He says the argument defended here by him is that new... That New Testament prophecy is infallible and inerrant, just like Old Testament prophecy. Various arguments are given by some continuationists to, to establish the fallibility of New Testament prophecy, but it is argued here that they are unconvincing. So to go back to Grudem here for a second, uh, Grudem is going to argue in this book, also he argues it in his systematic theology, uh, which has been extremely influential. Uh, Grudem's systematic theology is the most, probably most wide-read systematic theology today around uh, in major evangelical circles, and he just put out a second edition. So this, 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 is, this book's going to continue to have influence, I think, for years to come. And Grudem argues in his systematic theology that, same as that book, he says, in the Old Testament, the Spirit would speak, and straight out of Ezekiel's mouth would come the very words of God. Thus says the Lord, and his words were God's words. 
He would argue in the New Testament, prophecy changes. Well, where would he base that on? He would say that between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Greek word prophetes, propheteo, the, the Greek words for prophecy were watered down because pagan Greek culture would, they talk about a, a, a Cretan poet who was a prophet. Uh, Paul mentions that in Titus 1. He, they show examples of how prophet is used in pagan context and, and, and in many different ways. And Grudem argues, because the word prophet had been watered down between the Old and New Testament, we needed a new word to express infallible speech from heaven. And that's the word apostolos, apostle, not the word prophetes, uh, prophet. Um, now, I, I want to argue, if the New Testament writer's primary background was Greek and Roman culture, he might have a point. But the New Testament writer's background is not Greek and Roman culture. What is it? It's the Old Testament. And the Old Testament's use of prophetes in the Greek Old Testament is going to be the same, I'm going to argue, as the New Testament. Schreiner continues, since New Testament prophecy is infallible and inerrant like Old Testament prophecy, and since the church is established upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, we have significant evidence that New Testament prophets no longer exist today inasmuch as the doctrinal foundation of the church has been laid once for all. So we don't have need for New Testament prophets today because we have all that we need sufficiently for us in this book. That this book has all the foundation of the apostles and prophets, all of the, the infallible, inerrant divine speech we need is right here, and it's sufficient for all manner of life and godliness that the man of God would be competent, thoroughly equipped, equipped, sufficiently equipped for every good deed. So this is the sufficient word of God. And if we had people today who are capital A apostles or capital P prophets speaking the very new words from God, from heaven, straight from God's spirit, speaking infallible speech, it would be equal to scripture. And this is similar to the Catholic Church's era of church tradition being equal to sacred scripture, which is what they teach uh, very clearly. And so there is a massive danger of having speech today from human beings new speech being equal with that of, of Scripture, and it, it, it compromises the sufficiency of Scripture. And interestingly enough, Piper agrees with this, Grudem agrees with this, uh, Carson agrees with this, uh, everybody who's solid, in this, who's solid on both sides of this issue, uh, insofar as it goes, is going to agree with that point. So here we go. Here's um, a definition of prophecy, which we, we need to establish. And there's debate amongst theologians on how to define the term. There's still debate. But Tom Schreiner quotes from Richard Blaylock's definition, which I find very helpful here on the screen. New Testament prophecy has five component parts. I think this is very, a very good definition. This is, again, Richard Blaylock. New Testament prophecy can be defined as a miraculous act of intelligible communication. So a uh, miraculous act, it's, it's, it's a miracle, God is working straight through someone, and it's intelligible, as in uh, most prophecy is going to happen in the language that is known to the speaker. We'll talk about tongues maybe in a, on another one of these. Number two, it's rooted in spontaneous divine revelation. So this is not simply my opinion, this is not just a feeling that I have, or an in, inclination that I have, or a thought that just came into my mind. No, this is miraculous, spontaneous speech coming from heaven into my mind and out my mouth. It is the very speech of God, divine revelation. And number three, it's empowered by the Holy Spirit, which results in what? Words that can be attributed, so words that can be attributed to any and all members of the Godhead. These are God's words. You can attribute them to the Father, Son, or Spirit, and which therefore must be received by those who hear and read them as absolutely binding and true. 
uh, absolutely binding and true. So I think this is a good definition. It's a miraculous act of intelligible communication. It's rooted in spontaneous divine revelation. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit, which results in words that can be attributed to any member of the Trinity and which therefore must be received by those who hear or read them as absolutely binding and true. Now, what is Grudem going to say about a definition like this? Grudem is going to disagree. Grudem is going to say, no, in the New Testament, prophets uh, were less than what they were in the Old Testament. It's a lesser gift. And what he would say is, the Holy Spirit, yes, there's divine revelation. So he he would agree with that. He would agree with uh, the word here, uh, divine revelation. So he would agree, yes, there's divine revelation. And yes, it may come to your mind spontaneously from the Holy Spirit. But he would say that the actual points four and five, he would say this is not true. He would say the words cannot be attributed exactly as being from the Godhead, and they, can't, they are not absolutely binding and true. Grudem would say no to that part. So what, what he would say is the Spirit can prompt some image or thought or idea into your mind that is truly divine revelation from the Spirit of God, but when you seek to put it into your words, you are fallible, and the way you communicate what the vision or the thought or the image or the idea in your mind is going to be able to be flawed fallible, not inerrant. So it's the, images, the image or idea is straight from God. It's truly divine revelation. As you put it into your own words, you are fallible. You might misconstrue or misconvey what you're saying, and you might get some things wrong in the details, but the gist of it is divine revelation. This is Grudem's way and Piper and Carson's way of trying to guard the sufficiency of the inerrant scripture and keep all prophecy, even genuine prophecy, subordinate to the Bible and not equal and side by side with the Bible, which they absolutely must do. And I am extremely happy that they do that. That would be a massive error uh, if they did not uh, do that. So keep, keep that in mind. Schreiner says, first and foremost, there is no basis for saying prophecy is mixed with error. So the whole idea that, that New Testament prophecy can be real and at the same time mixed with error, he says there's no basis in the Bible for this. So those who contend that the gift of prophecy exists today should argue that such prophets speak, what, infallibly and inerrantly, but such a prospect uh, threatens the sole and final authority of Scripture. So I think there's a lot of agreement here on this point uh, that Scripture cannot be threatened, and so is New Testament prophecy mixed with error or not? Schreiner says, no, it's not mixed with error, even in the New Testament. The second argument, Schreiner says, is that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, as Ephesians 2.20 says, and that foundation has been deposited for us in the canonical scriptures, and the canon was closed with the writings of the New Testament. So we don't need any new divine revelation from God today. Schreiner, first, the burden of proof is on those who say that New Testament prophecy differs from Old Testament prophecy. That's the burden of proof. And I do not think Grudem's argument that the word had been watered down in Greek culture and therefore the New Testament needs a different word like apostle. No, 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 no. That, that is not going to work and I'm, I want to give you some, some reasons why. So let's start with this. What exactly is Old Testament prophecy? What is Old Testament prophecy? Let's start with that. Here's a classic text. Deuteronomy 18, 18. God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, a prophet like Moses from among their brothers. And I will put, now here's where you start getting a definition. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to, look, my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Well, you see here, God says, my words that he shall speak in my name. So these are divine words, they're God's words, they're my words, and he speaks them. So 
It's not as though God prompts Moses to say something, and then as Moses puts it into words, it could be right or wrong, mixed in the details, right or wrong. No, no, no. The very words that come out of Moses' mouth or out of his pen are the very words of God. My words that he shall speak in my name. And if you don't listen to him, God will require it of you. Passage continues. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that, sh- that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know? So this is going to be really important here. How do we test the true and false prophets? If you say in your heart, how may we know that the word of the Lord uh, has not spoken? So how do we know if a prophet is genuinely speaking God's words or not? This is an important text in this whole conversation, isn't it? Verse 22, here's the test. When a prophet, or at least someone claiming to be a prophet, speaks in the name of the Lord, here it is, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So if it doesn't come to pass or if it doesn't come true, God says, I have not spoken it. I have not spoken it. So if there are errors in any of it, errors in the details, errors in the main point, the secondary points, if anything that's said by the prophet is untrue, that prophet's a false prophet. He's spoken presumptuously. You don't need to listen to him. You don't need to be afraid of him. That's not a true prophet. So the, the test is, is what the prophet says right down to the details? If what they say comes to pass, true prophet. If what they say does not come true, false prophet. There's no idea of a genuine true prophet who speaks prophecies mixed with error. This backs up what I've been asserting, which is that the Old Testament is full of prophecy that is infallible divine speech. Here's a similar text. 1 Samuel 3.19, Samuel's a prophet. It says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. None of his words fall to the ground. Samuel prophesied and every single word he said came true. It was validated. It stood the test. None of his words fell to the ground. That shows you what? He's a true prophet. There were no errors mixed in the details when he prophesied. He was a true prophet. It doesn't say some of his words fell to the ground or some of the details weren't right. No, none of his words fell to the ground. He's a true prophet. So Old Testament prophecy is divine speech straight from heaven and the prophet's words are God's words and the prophet speaks without error and speaks on the same level as Scripture, thus saith the Lord. Here's what Schreiner says. In other words, Samuel was confirmed as a prophet because his prophecies were always fulfilled. We have no evidence, this is important, we have no evidence in the Old Testament that the prophecies of Old Testament prophets were mixed with error. No evidence. Old Testament prophets, if they were true, they had no error when they prophesied. Schreiner continues, Andrew Wilson Hence, in his book, that some of the Old Testament prophets might have erred as well. That's an amazing assertion. Most continuations would not say this. I don't think Grudem would ever say this. Uh, but this should be rejected. Yes, it should. For then how could they discern who was a true prophet? You get this? If Old Testament prophets had errors when they were truly prophesying, then how does the test of Deuteronomy 18 work? The test of Deuteronomy 18 that we just looked at says, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. So if you, the, the prophet has spoken presumptuously. So the only test we're given is the accuracy of the words of the prophecy. So if their prophecies had errors, and then how could you ever, uh, how could you discern who was a true prophet? So it makes no sense. Of course, their words had to be infallible and errant words because they were from God. The text cited earlier showed that genuine Old Testament prophets spoke infallibly. Yes, they did. 
And I'm going to give you some more text. I could, I could show you literally hundreds of these, I think. Uh, I went through one time just the book of Jeremiah alone. And if you look at Isaiah and Ezekiel, you're going to have so many verses like this one. Jeremiah 1. The Lord said to me, do not say, I am only a youth, for, to whom, for all to whom I send you, you shall go. And here it is again, you'll see this all over the place. Whatever I command you, you shall speak. Then the Lord put out his hand and he touched my mouth, Jeremiah says, and the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. I mean, this is all over the Old Testament. The words of Jeremiah are God's words. Yes, they're coming out of his mouth, but they are from God, and they are not going to have errors in the details because God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't have errors when he speaks. Jeremiah 23, 21. I did not send the prophets. He's talking about false prophets. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. So a false prophet is someone for whom God is not speaking. It's made up. Verse 22, but if, if they had stood in my counsel, when they had, when, uh, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned from their evil way and from their evil deeds. So um, he says here, yeah, they would have proclaimed my words if they were true prophets, my words, not mixed with error. Shriner, it is clear then that Old Testament prophecy was infallible and flawless, but that leads me to reiterate the main point. We expect New Testament prophecy to be infallible, like the Old Testament prophecy, unless the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that New Testament prophecy diverges from Old Testament prophecy. I suggest we don't have such clear evidence. See, the burden of proof is on the person who would say, Old Testament prophecy is inerrant, New Testament prophecy contains errors. And I don't think that that can be demonstrated. We'll continue. Pentecost, big moment. People think that the people are drunk because they're speaking in different languages. In Jerusalem, Peter stands up and says, Acts 2.16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now just notice here, this is the New Testament, and he's using the word prophetes to describe an Old Testament prophet, and he quotes Joel 2. In the last days it shall be, declares the Lord, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Now, now just look at this. Do you really think that the word prophetes has two different definitions in this verse? Think about it. But this is what was uttered through the infallible Old Testament prophet Joel. In the last days, New Testament era, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy with errors in their prophecies. Joel is an inerrant prophet, but the New Testament prophets are, 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 are full of errors, but they're genuine. No, 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 no. Clearly, the same Greek words are being used, and they have the same meaning. Old Testament prophet uh, Joel is the same as the New Testament sons and daughters who shall prophesy. There is no difference in definition. It is assumed that the same word has the same meaning in these verses. It continues, even on my male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And again, he says, and they shall prophesy. Same meaning as the Old Testament. Look at Luke chapter one. Zechariah finds out that he's going to have a son, John the Baptist, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is right here. And what happened? He prophesied. This is New Testament prophecy saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke as he spoke to us by his holy prophets from of old. So again, is the word prophet here and the word prophet here, does it, does it have two completely different meanings between these two? Because here, uh, no, th this is Old Testament prophets right here. And this is a New Testament prophet prophecy right here. Are we really to believe that one of them is flawed and one of them is unflawed? One of them has errors and one of them doesn't? No. In fact, the very words that Zechariah says are from the Holy Spirit and they're recorded in the Bible, which means these are inerrant words. His prophecy in the New Testament is inerrant, just like the Old Testament, holy prophets of old. So Grudem says about New Testament prophecy, uh, when done today, this is interesting, 
He says we should not say the Holy Spirit is saying, but rather, when we prophesy today, we should say, I think the Spirit might be leading me to say. I think the Spirit might be leading me to say. He's trying to protect himself, but let's see if that works. Jeremiah 2, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, um, I remember the, the devotion of your youth. Hear the word of the Lord, you house of Jacob. So thus says the Lord, Tade Lege. I'm going to come back to that uh, shortly. Thus says the Lord, again, Tade Lege. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? We're going to hold on to that thought. We'll come back to that. Schreiner says this. Second, those who support the notion that New Testament prophecies are mixed with error, either in the reception or transmission of the prophecies, say that in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 and 20, in 1 Corinthians 14, 29 to 32, it is the prophecies that are judged, not the prophets. Also, doesn't Agabus' prophecy in Acts 21, uh, though genuine, contain errors? So here's the idea. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 1 Corinthians 14 that prophecies are to be judged and evaluated. Not the prophets, but the prophecies are meant to be evaluated and judged. And Grudem says the only reason you would do that is because the prophecies are mixed with error. And so you must assess them and evaluate them and take the good and throw out the bad. Is that right? Schreiner, the prophets, according to this continuationist reading, are not excluded as false prophets if they err. The prophecies are sifted and the errors in the prophecy are meant to be rejected, not the prophets themselves. This attempt to distinguish New and Old Testament prophecy does not persuade because the only way to determine whether one is a true prophet, both in the Old and New Testament, is by assessing their prophecies. The standard in the Old Testament and the New Testament is the same. I agree with that. But here's a text that Grudem will point to. He says here, to, he's talking about gifts. To another is prophecy, and to another the ability to distinguish between spirits. Um, you have here, uh, the ability to distinguish between spirits is linked with prophecy. You need to figure out uh, what the spirit behind the prophet is, if it's a genuine or false spirit. Come back to that soon. First Corinthians 14, let two or three prophets speak and let the others evaluate or weigh what is said to judge, to diacrino. Grudem would say what they're, what they're judging is the, the, they're trying to get the errors out of the prophet and to, uh, to find what is true and good. The NAS translates it, the others will pass judgment. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-22. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So again, Grudem would say, you test the, every prophet, you hold on to what's good in it, and you throw out what's evil in it. Here's how Grudem says it. If the Thessalonians had thought that prophecy equaled God's word and authority, Paul would never have had to tell them not to despise it. When Paul encourages them to hold fast what is good, he implies that prophecies contain some things that are good and some things that are not good. I disagree with that. Grudem says, this is something that could never have been said of the words of an Old Testament prophet or the authoritative teachings of a New Testament apostle. That's not true. What is being evaluated in the, in the New Testament when it talks about evaluating prophecies is not uh, uh, mixing error and truth. Let me grab my water here. What instead is being evaluated is whether the prophet is a genuine prophet or not. This is a huge blow to Grudem's argument. So Jesus says, beware of false prophets. Again, he says, many false prophets will arise. Second Peter, false prophets arose among the people. There will be false teachers among you. The New Testament is not talking about how to discern true prophets but, uh, and, and what's mixed with error in their prophecies. No, it's saying how to discern the truth from the false prophet. 1 John 4 was a turning point for me in this whole discussion. 
Really, it was. In fact, let me give credit to him. Credit was due. An act, the actual turning point for me, it happened on a specific night. I, I, the next morning, I went to school and told Jerry Edgar about this, and I, I knew something was changing. Ed Clowney's book on the church, he has some chapters in here dealing with prophecy, tongues, and he critiques Grudem extraordinarily effectively. In the same series, Sinclair Ferguson wrote a book on the Holy Spirit. He's also critiques Grudem in a couple chapters on the same topics in a very effective way. These two books, the chapters in these two books on the, on the topic of prophecy and tongues was the decisive turning point for me in this whole situation. And then Shriner came along and helped me more with it. But it was really Ed Clowney first and then, and then uh, Sinclair that, that turned the ship to me very dramatically and suddenly as they helped me understand how to int- take these texts of Scripture and to understand them better. So, 1 John 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Notice here, behind Behind prophecies, you have spirits. Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. You see that there's an idea here that behind every prophet is a spirit, right? You got a spirit behind the prophets. And when a prophet speaks, you got to figure out whose spirit is speaking. Is it the spirit of God or the spirit of Antichrist? Is it the true spirit or the false spirit? He says, verse 2, by this you know the spirit of God. For every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming and is now in the world. So do you see, when John tells us what we're trying to discern when we hear a prophet, the question is not what's true and false in a true prophet, which is what Grudem says. No, his question is, is the prophet a genuine prophet speaking from God's spirit or a false prophet speaking from the spirit of the world? He continues, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. So you're either from the world or you're from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So we're looking at, so you've got a true prophet here, spirit is truth. You've got a false prophet here, the spirit of error. He's not talking about a true prophet who has errors in their prophecy. He's talking about genuine and false prophets. Schreiner says it like this, the testing of the spirits in 1 John 4 and the evaluating and assessing of prophecies in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 1 Corinthians 14 have the same function and work in exactly the same way. So he, let's go back to those verses that Grudem uses. Here, this is this was a huge moment. This connecting of Ed Clowney was so helpful. So, you've got gifts that go together. Watch this. You've got tongues and interpretation of tongues. You can see how these two gifts are obviously linked together. And right before that, you have prophecy, and you have the ability to distinguish between spirits. These two gifts are also linked together in the gift list. Can't have tongues without interpretation of tongues in the church setting in that time, and you can't have prophecy without the ability to distinguish or judge between spirits. This is not Paul saying, how do you evaluate the errors in a real prophecy? No, this is Paul saying, evaluate what spirit is behind someone who claims to be a prophet. And the question, according to 1 John 4 that we just read, is what? You've got two different kinds of spirits. Either it's the spirit of the world, or Antichrist, or it's the spirit of of God. So when Paul says here the ability to distinguish spirits, he means to tell a true prophet from a false prophet, someone who speaks from the spirit of the world or the spirit of God. Two chapters later, we would assume the same kind of context is in mind. 1 Corinthians 14, let two or three prophets speak 
and let the others. ESV is a little weak here. They say weigh what is said. In Greek, it's just one word, diakrino, which means judge. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. In other words, assess what spirit, distinguish the spirits. And 1 John said you're, it's either the spirit of God or the spirit of the world, the spirit of Christ or the spirit of Antichrist. It's either the true spirit or the false spirit. So when Paul says here, prophets speak, they claim to be speaking, and then the others judge, diakrino, evaluate what is said, they're judging if you're a true prophet or a false prophet. The ES, NASB is, again, a little bit stronger here, and I like that. It says, let two or three prophets speak, let the others pass judgment, diakrino. They're judging the prophet. Is it a true or false prophet? That's not what Grudem would say, but I think he's not correct on that. 1 Thessalonians 5, same con- kind of context. Don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to the good, abstain from every form of evil. So he, he says literally, basically, the prophet is either a good or evil, right? So whenever there's a prophet given, you test or evaluate, right? We just heard this. When you're testing, you are doing what? You want to figure out what spirit is being spoken from the prophecy. What spirit is it? And if it's a good spirit, if it's the Holy Spirit, then you hold on to what is said. But if it's the evil spirit, you cast out what is said. You abstain from every form of evil. So again, the question is not, let's figure out what's wrong in the true prophecy. Now the question is, is this a true or false prophet? Uh, I'm going to keep going here, skipping ahead. I think we already read through most of these verses. Let me skip back ahead here. Agabus is probably one of the big people on this debate that Grudem has gotten a lot of traction from. Um, from this guy is a, an adjunct professor uh, with the Master's Seminary in Washington, D.C., the uh, Extension Campus. He wrote a book called Defending Agabus as a New Testament Prophet. I have not finished the book, but of, of what I've read of the book, it's a, it's a very good, sound defense of, of uh, taking this uh, in the way that I would argue. He argues against Don Carson and um, Wayne Grudem in this book. He quotes them and, and argues, I, this is a good book if you want to know more about Agabus, short book and worth consulting. Uh, here's the question. Agabus is, is Grudem's one clear example, what he thinks is a one clear example of a true New Testament prophet who speaks with errors in his prophecies. And, and if he's right about this, then his point is proven true. And there's really no getting around it. If Agabus is a true prophet who speaks with some minor errors in detail in his prophecies, then Grudem must be right. Then New Testament prophecy is simply of a category lower and different than Old Testament prophecy. So here's his one example. Well, in the chapter Agabus shows up is Acts 21. Paul's on his way to Jerusalem, which is almost a death sentence. He almost does die in this particular trip. And here's what we see. Acts 21.4. Schreiner thinks this is the hardest verse for the cessations. I don't think it is the hardest verse, but it is a challenge. And having sought out the disciples, we, Luke and Paul and others, stayed with them for seven days. Now, here's a very difficult phrase. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So this is a prophecy language. I think that's correct. I think that through the Spirit means prophecy. They were prophesying through the Spirit, and they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And Paul is going to straight up disobey their advice, and he's going to go to Jerusalem anyway. So does that mean that their prophecy was mixed with error, and Paul could detect the error and didn't do it? Or what what are we to make of this? Here's how Grudem says it. That verse seems to be a reference to prophecy directed toward Paul. Now, I agree. I think it is a prophecy. And he says, and Paul, but Paul disobeyed it. 
He never would have done this if this prophecy contained God's very words and had equal authority with Scripture. So what do you say about that? Well, Grudem makes a strong point. It's one of his stronger verses, but I don't agree. Here's what I think is going on here. Through the Spirit is, a, is an ambiguous phrase. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. I don't think this means the Spirit said, Spirit said in the prophecy, don't go. I don't think the Spirit said, don't go. I think the Spirit told them infallibly that if Paul goes to Jerusalem, he will be tied up and beaten, which is what did happen. And I think they they took that true prophecy that was real, and they interpreted it as saying, therefore, you probably shouldn't go to Jerusalem. So through the Spirit, through the prophecy that Paul would be mistreated in Jerusalem, they came to a false conclusion that Paul shouldn't go. But I don't think that means the prophecy was mixed with error. I think they took a real prophecy that Paul would be mistreated in Jerusalem, and they drew a false conclusion that was not part of the prophecy, that Paul, therefore, should not go to Jerusalem. And if that doesn't make sense, continue here. 21 verse 10 of Acts. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named, and this is a big name here, Agabus, came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt uh, and bound his own hands and feet. So he's acting out sort of a parable here. He took his belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, now this is amazing, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him, paradidomai, into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, there's like eight things going on here, <laughs> or like three or four things for sure, and I, I'm going to get lost trying to un- unpack each of these. So let me, let, me, let, me, let me continue reading the text. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. See, I think that's what we mean. Through the Spirit, we urged him not to go. Well, what does that mean? It means there's a prophecy, and the Holy Spirit, so thus says the Holy Spirit. So here's the prophecy. The Spirit is speaking. Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man. So, and hand them to the Gentiles. Paul, we've got a prophecy. You're going to be bound if you go to Jerusalem. That is true. That's exactly what happened. And then they reach a false conclusion. We and the people there urged him not to go. The prophecy did not tell him not to go. The people came to a false conclusion based on the true prophecy that Paul should therefore not go to Jerusalem. And Paul says, hey, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to die in Jerusalem. And so therefore they, they said, we ceased and we said, let the will of the Lord be done. So they admit that the Lord is okay with Paul going to Jerusalem. So that's one confusion here. Here's what Grudem says. Agabus' introductory phrase, thus says the Holy Spirit, suggests an attempt to speak like the Old Testament prophets who said, thus says the Lord. I agree with him, and I think this is a huge hit against his own position. So if you're not following that, let me go back here and remind you of something. Oh, Jeremiah 2.2, Old Testament prophet, thus says the Lord. Tade lege. Thus says Yahweh. Tare lege Yahweh. A little bit later. Thus says the Lord. Tare lege. Right? Now let's go back and look at Agabus in Acts 21. This is amazing. Right here. Thus says the Holy Spirit. You know what these words are in Greek? Tare lege. Thus says the Holy Spirit. Exact same words used for an Old Testament prophet. It sounds like New Testament prophecy is the same as Old Testament prophecy. It's divine speech. Thus says Yahweh, thus says the Holy Spirit. Exact same level of authority in Old Testament and New Testament prophecy. And Grudem is the very one who says when you prophesy in today's age, you should not say thus says the Holy Spirit or thus says the Lord. You should say, I think the Lord might be leading me to say. Which means Grudem is not defining prophecy like the New Testament does, I don't think. But Grudem admits or Grudem says, the prediction in Acts 21 of Agabus was not far off. 
but it had inaccuracy in detail that would have called into question the validity of any Old Testament prophet. Now, I don't agree with this. I don't have time to explain all of it. It would just be too much off the mark, but let me just try to say quickly. Here's what the Holy Spirit said. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him, paradidomime, into the hands of the Gentiles. And when you read the story, um, the Jews are actually trying to mob and destroy Paul. The Gentiles actually come rescue Paul from the Jewish people in the mob, and they bind him and whatnot. And so Grudem says, hey, look, he's not, they're not getting the details right here. It's not the Jews that deliver him to the Gentiles. The Gentiles actually come rescue him from the Jews. Okay, however you want to look at that, here's, the, here's I think, the most important point. At the end of Acts, when Paul is telling the same story, this is the amazing part, he says, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people, so that is... Um, that's the Jewish people, I was delivered, same Greek word that was used in the prophecy, paradidomai, as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So when Paul later, after the fact, all the events happen, he not only confirms the prophecy was true in the details, he uses the same Greek word, paradidomai, to say I was handed over from Jerusalem to the hands of the Romans. So Paul is agreeing with, down to the exact same Greek word, paradidomai, yeah, Agabus's prophecy was true down to the details. So I think, I think, I think that uh, Grudem is just wrong on that. So Schreiner, uh, moving toward a conclusion, Schreiner says, we have no credible example in the New Testament of true prophets making mistakes. When Agabus prophesies that there will be a famine in Acts 11, his prophecy comes true. In the same way, Agabus's prophecy about Paul being bound and delivered over to the Gentiles in Acts 21.11 was not mistaken. When Paul recounts to the Jews in Rome how he was delivered, paradothine, as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, he uses the very word, paradidomy, that Agabus used to make the prophecy. We should conclude from this that Luke, the author of Acts, Luke believed Agabus wasn't mistaken. Okay, and if Luke is inspired by God, which he is, then the Holy Spirit doesn't think Agabus was mistaken. So Grudem's number one example of a genuine flawed prophet isn't teaching what I think he says it's teaching. Schreiner, Agabus also demonstrates that he is a prophet by using prophetic symbolism. That was typical of who? It was typical of Old Testament prophets. So for instance, Agabus takes Paul's belt, ties his hands and feet. We're reminded of weird stuff, that, at least it weird to us, Isaiah walking around naked to signify the judgment that would come on Israel in Isaiah 20, or the miniature siege work that Ezekiel built against Jerusalem in Ezekiel 4. Prophets in the Old Testament would act out what they're talking about by doing strange physically acted out examples of what exile will be like. God tells Ezekiel to cook uh, his food over dung. Why? Because in exile, that's what the people will be forced to do and in, 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 in the siege and whatnot. So Agabus, acting just like an Old Testament prophet, takes Paul's belt, binds his hands and feet and says, this is what's going to happen to you in Jerusalem. He's acting out his prophecy just like an Old Testament prophet. He's not of a lesser rank. He's just like an Old Testament prophecy, prophet. So Schreiner says, it is quite unlikely that Luke pauses to emphasize the binding action taken by Agabus to tell us that Agabus got it wrong. The Old Testament background suggests otherwise. Agabus used prophetic signs just like Old Testament prophets. And one more time here. Agabus says, thus says the Holy Spirit. Um, that, again, tells you he's speaking with divine authority. All right. Now, the last argument here is probably one of the most important ones, and I haven't even mentioned it yet. It's how the, the words apostles and prophets are used throughout the book of Ephesians. I think Grudem is extraordinarily weak on this extremely important point. So three times in the book of Ephesians, Paul says apostles and prophets, apostles and prophets, apostles and prophets. First, it's chapter two. 
So then you are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So he says here, apostles and prophets are foundational to the church that are like a, being built like a holy temple. So apostles and prophets lay the foundation. In other words, the divine infallible speech that apostles and prophets give us in the New Testament age forms the foundation of the church. And some people might argue against this and say, well, New Testament, yeah, apostles are New Testament, but aren't prophets in this text Old Testament? In which case, he's simply saying the bo- both testaments give us a foundation. Well, that could be true, and that would certainly argue in favor of Grudem's position, but even Grudem admits that that's not the case, because just a few verses later, literally like five verses later, you get this text right here, Ephesians 3. Paul says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was, this is so important, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. So now revealed. So not in other generations, not made known in other generations as it has now been revealed by the apostles and prophets. So the now is the New Testament era. So these have to be New Testament apostles uh, and New Testament prophets. Okay. So again, we're talking about the foundation of the church being laid by the apostles and prophets. Why would the prophets be part of this? Because they have the ability to speak God's words. So apostles speak God's words infallibly. We know that. That's not controversial uh, in the Christian realm. But a prophets do as well. That's why they are foundational to the church. They give us what becomes our New Testament. Now, Ephesians 4, this is really important. Same book, same author, same phrases here. We got apostles and prophets again. And this is the last time in the book, and this is really important. When Jesus ascended, it says here, he gave the apostles and prophets. And then he mentions the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Now here's where things are really important. Everyone who is within the bounds of orthodoxy, like everyone who's a Christian, will agree that um, we all still have shepherds and teachers today. There's slight controversy, but almost everybody would agree that we still have evangelists today. It depends on how you define the word, but I think most people are going to agree that, that those three in blue, we still have those today. Those are still around, okay? And I think everybody who is within the realm of orthodoxy believes in some kind of cessationism here amongst these gifts or or offices, however you define it. He gave, these are gifts. There's debate about whether they're an office or a gift, but however you see it, Jesus gave these gifts, these office gifts or whatever to the church. I think everybody would agree that this gift no longer functions actively today. I mean, we still have their inspired words in the Bible, like Matthew, who's an apostle, wrote Matthew. John is an apostle, wrote John, etc., so we all agree, most of us probably agree, evangelists still, still happen today, shepherds and teachers, that's like elders and pastors and whatnot, they're, they're all still there. We also agree apostles don't exist anymore. So the question is, does, the, um, does cessation only include apostles or does it also include prophets? So if, if we agree that uh, we no longer have uh, apostles, you could see that we also no longer have a prophets because these are the two divine infallible speech gifts. The apostolic speech gift, the prophetic speech gift, those two 
laid the foundation of the church. They're foundational. You only lay the foundation once. Once the foundation's been laid, not long after the apostles are dead, uh, the gift of prophecy fades out of existence. There's debate whether prophecy ends in the first century or the second, third, or fourth century as the canon is being put together. There's different views. Schreiner says it may last for a couple of hundred years until the canon is fully established in the 300s uh, AD and whatnot. Um, even really before that, the 200s is really when the canon is, is being more put, put together and smoothed out. But however you look at it, they don't exist today. Now that we have the complete canon of Scripture, apostolic gift is gone, prophetic gift is gone, but we still have evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Concluding, Schreiner says, what I'm arguing then is this, since prophecy is without error, there are not prophets today. Both apostles and prophets have ceased. The foundation has been laid once for all in the teaching of the apostles and prophets. A nuanced cessationist position is established since the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and that foundation has been laid once for all. As the apostles and prophets unpack the significance of the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no need for apostles and prophets today because we don't need any further revelation now that we have the canon of the New Testament. The case for cessationism is established further by the nature of New Testament prophecy. For there is no evidence that New Testament prophets erred when they prophesied. And we don't have among us today any prophets who declare to us the word of the Lord. If anyone claims to be such a prophet, they threaten the sole and final authority of Scripture, and their claim to be a prophet should be rejected. So that, that finishes this argument. Uh, obviously, there's way more to say than I've had time to say, but um, I do recommend, uh, in fact, if you go online, uh, if, you look, if you look up the Balios, Tom Schreiner uh, prophecy or something like that, you'll, you'll find a long, I don't know how many pages it is, but a, a debate back and forth between Schreiner and Andrew Wilson, which is really phenomenal. I, I, I worked through that, that argument uh, uh, multiple times when I was preparing to preach on this a few years ago. So highly recommend the debate between Schreiner and Andrew Wilson on the Malios. But uh, yeah, thank you for listening. I hope to do one on tongues before too long.